Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, January 16th, we are studying Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. The contrast with yesterday's text is stark. At his baptism, heaven opened up in praise of Jesus. Today, as we consider his temptation, hell opens up to attack Jesus. And Jesus is up to the task. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, the Reverend Dr. Adam Philippek. Pastor Philippek serves at Holy Cross Lutheran Church and Emmanuel Lutheran Church, both in Lidgerwood, North Dakota. Pastor Philippek, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you, Pastor Apple, and greetings and welcome to our listeners in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who was, who is, and who is to come. Pastor Philippek, as we get started, go ahead and give us some context here, some background information that will be helpful to us as we dig into this first part of chapter 4 in Matthew's Gospel. Sure. So over the last course of the couple days here, I know we've been studying the Gospel of Matthew, and just a reminder that there is a connection between Israel and Jesus. Colossians 2.17 says it this way, uh, the Old Testament Israel is the shadow, and Jesus is the reality. I, I like that language. And what, what that language says in Colossians, what this all means, is that throughout the Old Testament, God has called the nation of Israel his son in many places. But two of the most prominent places where this happens is Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, when it is said, they sh- you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn. That is a huge, huge commentary on the rest of everything that happens to the Old Testament. God calling Israel his son there at the Exodus when he sends Moses to Pharaoh in order to speak his word that his people may be freed. And then also another poignant one, Hosea 11. This has come up earlier with your guests in Matthew chapter 2, this quotation of Hosea 11, 1, that, uh, that says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So like I said, this latter verse from Hosea 11 is used by Matthew when discussing Jesus' flight into Egypt because Herod had ordered the death of all boys to and under in Bethlehem. And after the angel appeared to Joseph in a dream then in chapter 2, telling him to flee because Herod seeking to kill him, Matthew writes then, And so was fulfilled what the Lord said about the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. He makes the quotation. Matthew takes the Hosea 11 quotation and actually plops it right down in the middle of Jesus. And as if to say this, Jesus, this prophecy is actually all about Jesus. Again, I know you probably talked about this with, with Pastor Hemmer on Monday. But still, this then will serve as a bit of a reminder to our listeners. Matthew quotes this because he wants the hearers to know that Jesus is the summation of God's people, his son Israel. He is the representative, the final representative of the entire nation, Israel, so to speak, reduced to one man. We even see this, the details of this play out in the narratives. If we compare the shadow narrative with the reality narrative of Jesus Christ. So, to go back to the shadow of the Old Testament, God brought his son Israel out of Egypt and through the waters of the Red Sea into the wilderness to be tested by him and tempted by the evil one. And as we know, they failed miserably, like all who had gone before them, even Adam. Like Israel, God's son, they fell into sin, they grumbled against God, they wished to go back to Egypt, they wouldn't even go up to do what the Lord had told them to do in Numbers 13, which was take possession of the land of Canaan. So in Numbers 14, then, he tells them that he's going to make them wander in the wilderness for a period of 40 years, one year for each day that they explored the land of Canaan. So it's a, in, you've explored it for 40 days, now you get to wander it for 40 years, and you don't get to enter the promised land. In fact, every last one of them, 20 years and older, who grumbled and sinned against the Lord, will die off, and they will not enter the promised land. Their children will, as according to the promise of Genesis 3.15. 
Now, Jesus, God's beloved son then, to sort of parallel this and, and show how this works in the reality, Jesus, God's beloved son, having been brought through the waters of the Jordan, having been numbered with sinners who went to John for the baptism of repentance, and now having the sins of the world laid upon him in those waters, is now led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted for a period of 40 days, just like Israel of old. The question, though, then, that looms in this section is, how will he do? Israel was faithful, or Israel was unfaithful of old. The nation of Israel grumbled. So what about this Israel reduced to one? Will God's son be unfaithful, like the days of old, or will he be faithful? That's sort of the question in the background of the text. Much more can be said on that if you wish to focus on anything particular, Pastor Apple, but that, that's kind of the general sweep and how it all connects to what you've previously listened to in the past couple days. So let's see then in the text how God's beloved Son, Jesus, does in his temptation in the wilderness. This is Matthew chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. That's the text we have before us today, Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Pastor Philippeck, before we get into the three temptations that we have recorded here, I'd like to hear your thoughts on the fact that Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. What that just seems strange, and maybe especially as we, we think we pray, we pray in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not to temptation. Here we've got the Spirit leading Jesus to be tempted. What What's going on here? Yeah, so this is a very good question because oftentimes in our 21st century, we think maybe that God is, is tempting us. But Scripture in the James and Luther quoting that, in, as, we were talking, as you were talking about Luther's catechism and the, the meaning to that petition of the Lord's Prayer, actually says God tempts no one. God is not the tempter. He leads them out into the wilderness, yes, and the Lord tests as to see the faithfulness, just like Jesus is tested, so were the people of old. But what's going to happen in the wilderness, while well, God is actually giving him the word, uh, Satan is right there trying to take that same word. And so you have this competing word, just like in the garden. God says, do not eat of the fruit of the tree, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Well, that's, it. that's the word of God. But Satan then comes along, right? So this is it. This is, this is your test. And just it's kind of like a... Oh, you'd say this to your children, I suppose, the best thing, language I would have. If you love me, take out the garbage. <laughs> so it's kind of an opportunity to show love and faithfulness to your parents by listening to their word and doing what is, what is commanded of you. However, Satan comes along in the garden and says, you won't die, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So there's two competing words, and when it gets down to it, what word do you trust? The word of God or the word of Satan who tempts you. And temptation is always this way. Temptation is, is not to prove your faithfulness. Temptation is to draw you away from the word of God. And that's what Satan wants to do. That's what he wanted to do with Adam. That's what he wanted to do with all of Israel, to draw them away from the word and promises of God by giving them a competing word. And quite frankly, he is the father of lies, so a lying word. So, so he's led by the Spirit to undergo this, test 
But in the midst of this test, in the midst of fasting and prayer and relying on God's word alone, Satan comes to try to steal that away. I like that that image that you use of a competing word, and, and that's exactly what Satan does here with Jesus. We've just heard the Word of God, and that at the end of Matthew chapter 3, God speaks, this is my beloved Son, and then Satan comes with a competing word, if you are the Son of God. So, Pastor Philippek, what's Satan's play here? Yeah, I like that first part, if you are the Son of God, because when we use the, that word, if, in modern day, uh, we use that word if typically to express like uncertainty about a particular condition. Uh, for instance, if the sun shines today, I will go fishing. That is to say, I'm not really sure if it will, we'll see, but if that is the case, today we fish. But that, that's not at all how Satan is using this. Satan's not uncertain about Jesus being God's son. No, don't hear that in the text. What Satan is actually doing by using this word and these, these series of words, this phrase here, is he's directly assaulting what was said about Jesus by the Father in the waters of baptism. This is my beloved Son. So I would invite our, our hearers to understand it sort of along these lines. Really, Jesus? Come on, you can't believe that you are the beloved Son of the Father. I mean, look at how the Father's treating you here and now. He's provided for you nothing to eat. He's only given you these stones to munch on. Obviously, he cares nothing for you. The great provider has provided nothing for you. He's holding out on you. Don't trust him. You can do this on your own. Go on. Take matters into your own hands. Command these stones to become bread. But unlike Adam, unlike Moses, unlike Israel, unlike all the patriarchs of old, Jesus will refuse to succumb to this temptation, to this competing word. He will not idolatrously eat like Adam did in the garden. He will not idolatrously grumble, doubt, or distrust the Father's word like Israel who passed through the waters on dry ground and then grumbled in the wilderness. No, Jesus, the beloved Son of the Father, will wait for his Father to provide for him. He will trust the Father's word. The Father's word is enough. It is sufficient for him. He has spoken, and he will do it. So so Jesus' response then is quite telling of this fact. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Essentially this, no devil, I am the beloved son of the Father. And despite what you say, and despite what I see here and now with my hunger, my Father's word remains. I trust in him and his word alone. He will provide all I need. In fact, he already has. He has given me his word. This is my beloved son. And his words and his promises, they are faithful and they are true. And that is what I live by. That is what Israel lives by. Not by bread or whatever else we think we need, but rather by the word of God. I wait for him and in his word do I hope. So where Adam and Noah and Abraham and Jacob and Moses and Samson and David and all the patriarchs, even you and me, where we are unfaithful and idolatrous, Jesus remains faithful. As Hebrew 4 says, tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. You you mentioned earlier at the very beginning about the connection between Israel and Jesus, and Jesus being Israel reduced to one. He's representative of the entire nation. So particularly, Pastor Philippek, where what do we see here in Jesus and his success? Where's the failure of Israel that, that he's he's succeeding where they failed. Where do we see that parallel? Okay, so in this particular instance, then, you have the grumbling of the exodus in the wilderness. They needed food, and their comments about food and needing food was not just that they needed it, because God did provide for them. He provided the bread from heaven, manna, which we could get into a whole commentary, Jesus is the bread of heaven, all that good stuff. But that's, that's for John. We'll, we'll save that for John. For this whole thing, um, in the midst of the Old Testament narrative then, the, the shadow of all of this is that they grumbled. Uh, they did not remain faithful into the wilderness, but they, they wanted to go back to Egypt. There were garlic, leeks, onions, grapefruits, and they... Though they had manna, they detested this worthless food. And so they absolutely refused to cling to the words and promises of God and 
and even the, the manna he provided for them, they, they grumbled about it. But Jesus didn't even grumble about being hungry, about having nothing. Yeah, that, that, that parallel with food is, is it's just so, so clear, I think. I, you, I think you could you can make a parallel, too, and, and I think you probably pointed it out, at least you hinted at it, with Adam and Eve and their temptation being food, too. But I, I, think, I think the connection that Matthew's drawing is, is a bit stronger with Israel, just because of what you've said about Israel reduced to one. But I think it's, it's there with Adam and Eve, too. What, well, what about— I agree. Well, go ahead. I'm, I'm going to save a lot of my commentary on Adam's connection probably till the third temptation. Okay, very good, very good. Well, let's let's keep pressing forward then. So, so the first temptation, Jesus succeeds where Israel had failed, where Adam had failed. Jesus succeeds. The devil's not done yet, though. What what's going on in temptation number two? Yeah. So in the second temptation, I would say there's certainly an intensification from the first, and maybe this is just me, but I would argue that even the fact of the elevation, the physical climbing up to the pinnacle of the temple shows uh, we're going to keep moving higher and higher and higher, right? So we start on this wilderness, we go to the pinnacle of the temple, and we end up on a very high mountain. So they, they sort of, by even the narrative, show us an increase in intensification based upon elevation. Now, Satan then, <laughs> taking him to the pinnacle of the temple, escalating this ups the ante, so to speak, that is to say, since Jesus will not provide for himself, but insists on remaining faithful to the word of the Father and to the word of the Father alone, Satan is now going to use this word of God as part of his temptation, of his faithfulness. It's actually saying something like, oh, you're God's beloved son who lives by his word, are you? Well, <laughs> let's see about that then. Oh, beloved son of the Father... And then say, quotes to him Psalm 91, 11 through 12, in essence saying, prove it, Jesus. Live by the word of God and by that word alone. Throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So go on, Jesus, jump. Throw yourself down, and let's see how beloved you really are. Let's see if the Father will use his power and might to intervene and save you. Now, here's the thing, Pastor Apple. Satan is just up to his old tricks again. What I mean by that is there is no truth in him. As I mentioned earlier in the broadcast, John 8:44 tells us he is the father of lies. So he either must do one of two things. He must flat out lie and contradict the word. Ah, you will not die. You will be like God. Or, and that, that by the way, is according to his nature, or he must, if he wants to say something that is true, borrow from God who is the truth and whose word is true. And that here is what he does. He quotes Psalm 91, 11 through 12. And borrowing Psalm 91, he actually twists the word. He leaves out part of it. So we're very familiar with he will command his angels concerning you. But then notice we get and on their hands, he'll bear you up. But the text actually says, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you or keep you in all your ways. And on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. So he actually leaves off the word to keep or guard you in all your ways. I mean, this is key because God's promise is that he will protect his people as they live according to the ways that he has taught them. And what he has taught them in Psalm 91 is that God will protect his people from the assaults and attacks and dangers of the enemies who afflict them and try to overcome the promises of God that have been spoken to them. Psalm 91 says absolutely nothing about testing God to see if he'll really do what you think he says he promises. Emphasis on what you think he says. Because oftentimes we misquote, we misapply, we misuse God's word for ourselves. But Jesus' response is absolute faithfulness. Where you and I are unfaithful, again, he remains faithful. The perfectly obedient son of the father trusts perfectly. He will not put God to the test. So again, thinking about Jesus as the embodiment of Israel, of his success compared to their failure, where in the account of Israel in the Old Testament, where in that shadow do we see the failure that Jesus is succeeding? So this is, this I would say ends up in, um, again, the temptation in the wilderness, 
the the parallelism is perhaps not as clear as the first one. Um, Jesus's citation of Deuteronomy six uh, sixteen is is kind of prevalent here, but um, this this whole undergoing of the assaults of the tempter and the enemy in the wilderness, um, remaining faithful to to the promises of God is in in the looming here. I mean, this is this is following very closely to the the narrative of Exodus leading his people out, trusting in this word. Now we had the grumbling, but now um, we actually have this. And I would even I would take this all the way through the Old Testament, even even to. King Ahaz is a good example of what's going on here. It, it happens throughout the wandering of the wilderness, but this is, this is Israel's history, right? So Ahaz is told to trust that the northern kingdom and the alliance there between Pekah and Rezin won't actually come to fulfillment. The southern kingdom won't be destroyed. And the Lord says, ask for a sign. Let it be as high as the heavens or as deep as Sheol. But Ahaz has already formed an alliance with TP3, right? Tiglath Pileser III. He will have none of it. He, he can't trust in God. He can't wait for God. He needs to act now. He needs to do something because his enemies are pressing in. But God has told him, I will protect you against your enemies. So what happens then, of course, he, he is unfaithful. And God says, I will give you a sign. And then that Emmanuel verse that we know comes into place. But this is also David. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. So all along here, this, this enemy is pressing in, pressing down on them. And, and the failure to trust in God to protect is sort of the context of all this throughout the Old Testament. Yeah, I, I think you're right that it's it's not just one event, and I, I never really connected the the Ahaz incident, but I think I think that's a good one. The one I'd always thought of was the, I think it's Exodus 16 or 17, where um, you get the the Masa and Meribah, and and one of those yeah. is, is named testing, right? And and here Jesus says, "You shall not put the Lord your God to the test." So yeah, but I, I think you're right. It's it's a it's something that goes throughout the Old Testament, not just one particular event. So we've got just four minutes here on this side of the break, Pastor, Pastor Philippek, and uh, we need to look at the, the third temptation. It's probably a bit more there than we can cover just on this side of the break. So sure. to get us started, you've talked about this intensification that's happening, and I think we see that here. And and in verse 9, maybe the question we can answer on this side of the break is, who does the devil think he is? All these I will give you. What what should we get? Just get us started here into this third temptation. We'll pick up the rest on the other side. Sure, I'll, I'll do the best I, I can, and then we'll pick it up after the break. So again, just to the, the hearers, notice the temptation here, the increase in elevation again, signaling, I would argue, an intensification of the, of the temptation. So this is the third, final, and hardest temptation that Jesus will face. And this temptation is actually going to now strike at the heart of the Father's word concerning his beloved Son and what he has sent his son to do. So this temptation is a shot directly at Jesus' mission. The devil shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. I would say this is a synecdoche, meaning a part for the whole. Like if you see somebody's automobile and you say, nice wheels, you don't really mean, oh, you've good, got good Michelin or, or good your tires. You mean, you know, that's a nice automobile that you have. Or on all hands on deck means everybody come and help me, right? So this all the thing, kingdoms of the world and their glory means everyone and everything, all creation, all people that Jesus was sent by the Father to save. Think John three fourteen to 16 on this one. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that everyone who believes in him has eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And now a little bit just quickly to your question. Please do not get hung up on all these things I will give you by thinking, well, wait a minute, I know Psalm 24, verse 1, the earth is mine and the fullness thereof, or everything belongs to the Lord. Satan's just flat out lying here. Well, yes, yes, God is the creator and not Satan. That is absolutely true. And everything comes from and belongs to God. But to take that misses the point. I mean, Scripture also teaches in 1 John 5, verse 19, that since the fall into sin, the whole world is under the power of the devil. 1 John 3, verse 8, everyone who practices sinning, everyone who makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Colossians 1, 13, talks about how we were once all in the kingdom of darkness. Romans 5, 10, calls us enemies of God. And echoing this in our baptismal liturgy, here's what it says. We are all conceived and born sinful and under the power of the devil until Christ claims us as his own. So don't miss Satan's words by just flat out saying, oh, it's a lie. Uh, it has no basis whatsoever. Rather, see these words of Satan as what they are, a lie 
that is twi- a twisting of God's word and an attack on the person and work of Jesus, his beloved son. So Satan does have a kingdom, right? I mean, is, is that, and, and Jesus has come to take from Satan a kingdom, but he's not going Absolutely. to do it in this way, not in the way that Satan's tempting him to get this kingdom. Jesus is going to get it a different way, the way that the Father has given him to get it. Is that is that kind of, uh, maybe that's a teaser for the other side? Pastor that that is a teaser. That is a beautiful summary, yep, of what I All just right. said. All yeah. right. Very good. So we will take that break. We're looking at Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11 this morning here on Sharp Iron. I'm Pastor Timothy Apple. We'll take that short break right now, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. On this Thursday, January 16th, we are studying Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, with the Reverend Dr. Adam Filipek of Holy Cross Lutheran Church and Emmanuel Lutheran Church, both in Lidgerwood, North Dakota. Pastor Filipek, prior to the break, we were beginning to discuss the third temptation that Satan throws at Jesus here in Matthew chapter 4. All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And the teaser we left with was that Satan does have a kingdom. Jesus is coming to take it from him, but not in the way that Satan is tempting him to do here. What's what's Satan doing here, Pastor Philippeck? Yeah, so with this in mind, let's kind of consider this. So when Satan says, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me, notice first and foremost how Satan has now in this third temptation dropped, if you are the Son of God. That's nowhere in this temptation as it is in the previous two. So unlike the first temptation then, where Satan tries to get Jesus to doubt the goodness and provision of the Father, and unlike the second temptation where Satan tries to test Jesus in his trust in the Father's word and promise and power to protect and save his beloved son. Now, Satan presumes that this beloved son of the Father will worship someone. That is, he will definitely trust someone's word. And now we're back to the competing words of the garden with Adam, right? So I would understand these words effectually like this, since Satan goes to the heart of it. Let's see, Jesus, if he will turn from the Father's word toward my word, and in so doing, worship me, just like Adam did in the garden. So, here goes. Look here, Jesus. See all the people that the Father has sent you to save and rescue from me? I'll tell you what. I will give you what you were sent here from the Father to get. I will give you all these people. Right here, right now. And here's the great thing. You don't have to go to the cross to get them. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to bleed. You don't have to die. You don't have to serve the Father's will or these people by giving your life as a ransom. No. Simply bow down right here and now. Worship me, and all these are yours. It's all over here and now. The Father gets what he wants and what he sends you for, these people, right? And you don't have to endure the pain and suffering and rejection or crucifixion. And I, well, you know, I get what I want. See, everybody wins. It's a win-win situation. (laughs) Pastor Apple, this is the heart of the third, final, and greatest temptation. It strikes the heart of Jesus' mission as he was sent for the Father for the purpose of giving his life as a ransom for the many. And I want you to notice this. Notice the intensity of Jesus' response as to the previous two. It is written. It was a firm and steadfast response, but this is, be gone, Satan, for it is written. I mean, notice that, be gone, get out of here, right? You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus is our perfect substitute. 
in the face of temptation where you and I are unfaithful, he remains faithful unto death. He will not give up and he will not give in. He will cling to the word of his Father. He will trust the Father and he will be obedient unto death, even death upon the cross. And in so doing, he will fulfill for us what we are unable to do for ourselves He will reconcile us to the Father, not with gold or silver, but with his holy, precious blood, his innocent suffering, his bitter death. He will fight for us. This kind of also has chords back to the Exodus, where Moses stretches out his hands. God will fight for you. You need only be silent. Jesus fights for us, and he wins the victory over sin, over death, and over the devil himself for us and for our salvation. I absolutely love how our Holy Week proper preface says this. Take a listen. It is truly good, right, and salutary that we should at all times and in all places give thanks to you, Holy Lord, Almighty Father, everlasting God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who accomplished salvation of all mankind by the tree of the cross, that where death arose their life also might rise again, and that the serpent who overcame by the tree in the garden might likewise by the tree of the cross be overcome. I mean, this is a direct connection to Adam. The competing words back and forth. Whose word do you trust? Adam trusted in the serpent's word and in his wife's word who was echoing the voice of the serpent. He wanted to be like God. He ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And where the first Adam failed us, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, has come, and by that tree of the cross, he has overcome the serpent who overcame the first Adam by the tree of the garden. It is beautiful, and it is rich, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The connection to the cross that you make in this third one, I think, is is so important. And I, I think, you know, it's it's interesting, as, a, as you were talking about how he leaves out in this third temptation, if you are the Son of God, and he just goes straight to all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. It, it seems that by the end of Matthew's gospel, Satan is still throwing this at Jesus, but he's he's picked back up the if you are the son of God. And in Matthew 27, uh, verse 40, you hear the mockers at the cross. If yeah. you are the son of God, come down from the cross. And I know it's not the exact same verb. It's not fall down, but but the parallel there is striking. Satan hasn't given up, even by Matthew 27, and Jesus still shows himself to be the faithful Son of God there on the cross. Absolutely. The cross is the heart of this all. I mean, it's the mission, and that's what the temptation is about, to try to draw Jesus away from the will of the Father, which is to send his Son to be high and lifted up on the cross, that everyone who looks to him in faith might be drawn to the Father and reconciled to him in the flesh and blood of Jesus. Pastor Philip, before we take the, the text and, and think about application to us, comment a bit on that, that last verse in verse 11 there, that the devil left him and the, the angels came and were ministering to him. How, how is this a fitting conclusion to the account of Jesus' temptation? Yeah, so notice that after all of, all of the temptation, after everything that has happened, or during the temptation, I should say first, that nothing has happened, no one has attended to him, the Father has has sort of just let his son, let his son out in the spirit to be tested. And remember, this is about competing words, right? Is Jesus going to be unfaithful like Israel of old, or is this Israel reduced to one going to be faithful? And now after clinging to God and his word alone, what happens but the fulfillment of the father's promise to provide for his son, to give power, to, protect, to give protection, and to be there. So the, the whole actual thing that Jesus has clung to is in a moment, after Satan leaves him, realized, like the Father's word is fulfilled before the eyes of his son. He has proven, Satan has proven, to be the father of lies, and the Father is proven to be true and trustworthy in his word. So as we think then about this text and how we take this and use this text for our comfort as Christians, I think there's, there's a couple things that we, we want to say, and, but probably the first one, and maybe this is the way that we often move, is, is to view Jesus as our example. And I think we, we should talk about that, Pastor Philippic. But before yeah, I we think see we Jesus— Yeah, how, how should we see it before we see Jesus as example, though? 
Okay, so so the heart of this text is really Jesus as our substitute, right? First and foremost, this text reminds us that we are not God, that we are sinful by nature. From the time we were conceived in our mother's womb, all thoughts, all words, are all actions tainted with sin, corrupted in our nature, by nature sinful and unclean is how we typically say that, right? So we're just like David, we're just like Samson, we're just like Moses, we're just like Jacob and Abraham and Noah and Adam and all the prophets. We too are idolaters. We don't fear, love, and trust in God above all things. We have other gods. We are not perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. I, I think that that is absolutely key to all of this. But in seeing that and in knowing the wages of our sin is death, here before our eyes we see clearly that we are not without hope in the midst of our sin and temptation and assaults of the devil. Here's how I would take this text. Jesus is our perfect substitute. He does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He is perfect, he is obedient, he is faithful to his Father and to his Father's words. He is without sin, and yet he is the one who becomes sin for us. He resists the devil for us. He pays the price for our sin. The wages of sin is death, so Jesus dies for us. He fulfills the law perfectly, and he tramples down our enemies, sin, death, and the devil, by his own death. Hence, Jesus is the one who overcomes sin. He overcomes Satan. He overcomes death. And he gives us the victory by marking us with his cross. And here's your connection back to three in the waters of holy baptism. So that you are adopted as the beloved sons of the Father. He has put his spirit inside of you, and that spirit cries out, Abba, Father. And as God's children, no matter what you face, sin, death, or the devil, you know for certain that they cannot and that they do not win. Ours is the victory in our perfect substitute, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was obedient perfectly to his Father, even unto death, death on the cross. That's how I would take this, and that's where I would find my comfort in this, first and foremost, Jesus as substitute. So, Pastor Philip, like, you, should, you should write a hymn about this, and, and you might call it, <laughs> A Mighty Fortress is Our God. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is what Luther's doing in that hymn, right? Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. I mean, it, that, that third verse. Though devils all the world should fill, all eager to devour us. And listen to how he responds. We tremble not, we fear no will, they shall not overpower us. I mean, look at the confidence because of Christ. They have nothing on us. They don't win. Jesus holds the field forever. Right, and and even and even the first two stanzas of that hymn get into this this what you're talking about that that we fail right our our might can do nothing, but look on the field who is there fighting for you There's that that Exodus fourteen language that you were talking about who's the one who yeah. fights for you You be still you be silent, and you watch him fight but for us fights the valiant one whom God Himself elected right There's the baptism of Jesus coming up. Matthew Absolutely. chapter 3, ask ye who is this Jesus Christ? It is of Sabaoth Lord, not Sabbath Lord, but Sabaoth Lord, right? The, the Almighty Lord, the Lord of hosts. He's the one the who general holds the himself. forever. Yes, yes. Yeah. This, this text, Matthew chapter 4, the temptation of our Lord, is the, is the text for the first Sunday in Lent, a, an appropriate text when you, you put it liturgically. You know, the, you've got this 40 days of, of repentance, of, of, of waiting, of watching. And this text is, is the, the first Sunday in, in Lent. And, and this hymn, A Mighty Fortress, is the hymn of the day for that. And what, a, what an appropriate way to enter into that penitential season, recognizing that it's not our might that has won this battle, but it is Christ's might on our behalf, him as our substitute. And, and that's the way I think we need to, when we, when we take this text and, and apply it and use it as Christians, that's the first way we need to use it, is, is as Jesus as substitute. But that's not to say, and feel free to, to come back at that if you want, Pastor Philippeck, but that's also not to say that there isn't anything here considering Jesus as an example in the way that a Christian would face temptation. So feel free to, to add anything else to the Jesus as substitute, but also 
take us start taking us into how do we take this text and, and look at the way that Jesus fends off Satan's attacks, and and how we might take that and use that as Christians as well. Yeah, so I, I like that you that you said and how you said that that first and foremost we take. Jesus as our substitute, in summary of all this, because a lot of times we do take this text in Christendom, um, especially modern scholarship, to be Jesus as an example for us, first and foremost, and that's not bad to see Jesus as an example in the text, but I will tell you this, if, if that is your primary reading of the text, then you have pretty much only despair before you. Because if Jesus is the one who is an example to me of how to face down God's God's word or how to face down the devil's temptation with God's word and how he overcomes it with God's word, that's all well and good, which we'll talk about in a minute. But the problem is I, I don't do that at all times and in all places. I, I'm not perfect as my heavenly father is perfect. I have a sinful nature that clings to me and in the words of Paul, why is it the things that I don't want to do? That's what I keep on doing. So if, if Jesus is only your substitute, then you're going to end up looking at yourself in despair saying, what's wrong with me? Maybe I'm not a Christian. Maybe I'm not God's child. Maybe, maybe I, I don't believe uh, as I should. Maybe, maybe my faith isn't strong enough. Maybe I don't believe at all. I mean, this is the devil's temptation then to lead you away from the word of Christ. So, so Jesus as our substitute is absolute key. But then secondarily, we would be boneheaded, I'll just say it that way, if we didn't see in this text as well an example for us to fight the good fight of faith. Um, God has already fought it. He has already won it. And yet, as we, as we await the inauguration of that, as we await, or rather not the inauguration, the consummation of that, as we await that great and glorious day when by the sound of the trumpet he calls us out of death and darkness into the marvelous light of salvation, wipes our tears from our eyes, and we are free from sin, death, and the devil forever. They don't plague us. They don't attack us. Until that great and glorious day, we live in, in the midst of battle. And though we have the victory, Satan still prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking for someone to devour. So in this, I think we can also see example an example uh, of Jesus, I think we can see this. Are, are the, certainly, the church fathers uh, take Jesus as substitute chiefly, and then also as an example. They comment on both. Um, Chrysostom does this. Uh, Hippolytus does this. Tertullian does this. I mean, all kinds of things. But sort of to get into that, then here's what I would say about Jesus as an example. When we faced temptation as a Christian, we must, by faith, cling to the Word of God, just as Christ did. And thus his promises, of course, in the person and work of Jesus for us. We must cling, we must be utterly dependent upon God's word and God's word alone. And Pastor Apple, I think that looks two different ways. First of all, it, refuse, it, it, it looks like, first and foremost, I guess, refusing to continue in your sin. That is to say this. Um, somebody trips me, right? Here's my example. Somebody trips me, and man, you trip me. My, my desire is to punch you in the face. Now, I've already committed a sin, yes, by thinking about that. But the question is, do I let my fist fly? Do I act on that? And here, the Word of God is living and active, and it governs my life. When I face temptation, then, the Spirit of God is at work, living and active in me through His Word, and I end up saying something like this. No, no, I refuse to do that. I'm not going to punch that person in the face. That's not who I am. That's not what I do. I don't break the fifth commandment willy-nilly. I'm a baptized child of God. I've been marked with the cross of Christ. I've been joined to Jesus. I am clothed in a robe of his righteousness that covers all my sin. I'm an heir of his kingdom. So I refuse, devil. I refuse to indulge this sin world. I refuse my own sinful flesh. I will not continue in the sin, for that is not who I am. I am a son of God. And through all of this, a Christian life reflects the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. The same spirit that descended upon Christ is the same spirit that he has put in us, in the waters of holy baptism, the spirit that cries out, Abba, Father. So it's not us refusing Satan. It's God at work in us to will and to do according to his good pleasure. So this is first and foremost God's work in our lives through the spirit. And again, this is marvelous in our eyes. And the second way, though, I think we all can relate to it as well. It, it talks about 
what I said earlier, Jesus as the example, only the example. I mean, we give in to sin, too. Yes, we refuse to continue our sin, but there are times when, man, we just indulge our sin. And then later on in repentance, by the Spirit of God at work, we realize, that was a stupid thing that I did. I should have never done that. I should have never said that. I should have bit my tongue or, or held my tongue or whatever the case may be. Why did I do that? And that's when the devil does his worst. Because that's when he accuses you in the confines of your mind, and maybe through others who might know about that, saying things that amount to this. How could you? I thought you were a child of God. God's children don't say things like that. They don't do things like that. Jesus didn't do that. How can you do that? They don't act like this way. You know, no one could love or forgive you if they truly knew who you are and what you've done. In these moments, a Christian once again clings to and trusts depends on God's word and God's word alone. We flee, just like in the first one, we flee to the promises of God for me. There is no question. First John chapter eight or John chapter one verses eight and nine, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not us. If we say, No, I'm pretty good, I don't have any sin, we're a liar. But look at the second half of that. If We confess our sin. God, who is faithful and just, notice the certainty, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God's word is clear. There is no question at all as to whether or not God could love me or forgive me my sins after what I've done. God's word is clear. My sins are forgiven in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed my sin from me. Isaiah 1, 18, though your sins were like scarlet, now they are whiter than snow. Though they were red as crimson, now they have become as wool. Because Jesus was sinless and is sinless, perfectly obedient to the Father unto death, even death on the cross. He has paid the price of my sins in full. Again, not gold or silver, but his own precious blood shed for me. And because this word has been given to me in the waters of baptism, that is because I was marked with the cross of Jesus, united with him, buried with him, raised with him, clothed in a robe of his righteousness, given the Holy Spirit, the forgiveness of sins, and made a son of the Father. Just like Matthew 28, Acts 2, Romans 6, Galatians 3, 1 Peter 3, 2 Colossians 2, or Colossians chapter 2, John 3, and Titus 3, and Mark 16, and Acts 22 say, to name a few verses, I know that God has not abandoned me. He has not cast me aside in the midst of my sin. He has not forgotten about me. He has engraved me on the palms of his hands. He's written my name in blood there on the cross. I am a beloved son of the Father. I am forgiven. I am a child of God. I am an heir of paradise because I am baptized into Christ. So get behind me, Satan, or in the words of Jesus, be gone. I refuse to believe your words, your lies. I trust in God and in his word, I hope. That's how the word of God functions for us. Jesus as an example, clinging in both those situations to resist sin and when we fall into sin, to cling to his word all the more. Uh, this emphasis that you've got on the Word of God, I, I just, it's so helpful. And there's, I think there's a lot of things we could keep talking about with this. But one of the things that, I, that I'm getting from you, that I think sometimes we, we look at Jesus as example here, and we see him quote you know, three different Scripture passages. And, and we get this idea maybe in our minds, well, i got to know the right— here's, the devil's going to tempt me with A, and so I have to know A prime. So that, to, to get him. Or he's going to tempt me with B, and so i got to know B prime and C. I mean, we match him up like that. But that, that's not really what you're, what you're giving us here. And, and I think where, where it really ties together is what you've said about baptism. I think the promise of God that he makes to us in baptism is where these two ways of clinging to God's word really are, are tied together for us. And, and the, the best way that I know how to explain it is, is to look at Luther's morning and evening prayers and the way that, that he teaches us to live in our baptisms there, that in the morning we get up and pray Lord, help me to live as your baptized child today. Help me to flee from sin and every evil. And then at the end of the day, when we come back to God, we come back as his baptized child, knowing that he does forgive us all the sins we have done wrong because of, because of baptism. And I mean, I think I, I just, that's such a, a more comforting way of taking this and applying it as Jesus' example here than just sort of having a list of scripture passages and making sure I, I plug in the right one to the right temptation. It's, it's much, 
it's much better than that. It's it's a much greater promise that God gives us in in holy baptism to to fight these temptations of of the devil. Pastor Philbeck, we got about three minutes left on the morning. Wrap wrap us up. Respond to that. Bring it all home. Yeah, I'll, I'll respond to that and see if I can wrap it all up in one. But you're right. It's a matter of our identity, right? By nature, we are sinful and unclean, separated from God. And our baptismal liturgy says we would lo- be lost forever. And we had named all of those verses that coincide that that verify that very thing. But the fact is, Christ has claimed us as his own. And in claiming us as his own, all those baptismal verses that I listed for you just moments ago go to the heart of what does God say about me? Because the devil will say all kinds of things. And I will be tempted in my sin to believe all kinds of things as I fail to live up to Christ's example. But even failing miserably, still knowing that at the end of the day, I am marked with the cross of Christ, and I belong to Jesus. And in repentance and faith, the Christian life is lived kind of cyclical. Every day, this is a battle, and every day, I need a fervent reminder, while I am weak and powerless against the Satan, there is one who is strong, who is mighty, who has saved, and who is able to save Jesus Christ, our perfect substitute, Son of God, and he has claimed me as his own. So no matter what I feel, no matter what Satan says about me, God's word governs my life. God's word is true. Not my word, not Satan's word, God's word. The word of the Father that Jesus clung to is the word of the Father that has been placed on me. And baptism is not just merely forgiveness. See, we, sometimes as Lutherans we shortchange every sacrament as like forgiveness, right? Baptism, it's forgiveness. Uh, Lord's Supper, it's forgiveness. Uh, <laughs> Holy absolution, it's forgiveness. But here, yeah, it's, it's, it's forgiveness, but they're all nuanced. And baptism's nuance is that you actually become an adopted son of the Father, your sonship is at stake, your identity. So, so clinging to the, that identity that God has spoken to you in the waters of baptism is exactly the case, right? Luther talks about making that sign of the cross daily and remembering whose we are. And that's key. God's word governs our life, not Satan's, not ours. Pastor Adam Philippeck is the pastor at Holy Cross Lutheran Church and Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Lidgerwood, North Dakota, helping us this morning with Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Pastor Philippeck, thank you so much for your time today. You bet. Thank you. Luther says it so well in his hymn. With might of ours cannot be done, soon were our loss effected. But for us fights the valiant one whom God himself elected. Ask ye, who is this? Jesus Christ it is. Jesus has won the victory. He is your perfect substitute. Where you have failed, he has not. And he has done that for you. His perfect life is yours. His righteousness is yours. His life is yours, given to you in the waters of holy baptism. You are a child of God, and what a joy it is to have that promise. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.